Back everybody to another riveting podcast with White Coats of the Round Table. You got Mike here today again with us as always. Last time you said that you couldn't get rid of me, and I'm here to stay. And I'm slowly interviewing folks, hopefully to get a better podcast co-host. Somebody might be just a little bit uglier than me, make me look a little bit better. But here we are again, and uh, today we got something exciting. Uh, we're going to be talking about alternate career paths as we have been kind of a series that we're doing and this is going to be on pharmaceutical consulting we're kind of looking at today as an interview for for mike um this is where his specialty lies or one of his many can you tell me just a little bit about how long you have been doing this before we get going yeah sure well my goodness if the podcast is a beauty contest you and i are both in trouble so I'd like to start there. I do like to say I got married young so that I could let myself go. So, you know, I knew uh, my family history is one where my uh, hair was not going to last forever. So I had to lock someone down early. Mike, well, you have to try harder because you're looking fine. Oh, thank you, John. Thank you. So honored. Now it's getting weird. So, yeah. So pharmaceutical consulting, I love it. Um, I know it may be controversial, so it's going to be interesting to hear back from listeners, you know, because I think a lot of times pharmaceutical industry in general gets a bad rap. You're seeing more and more healthcare organizations that uh, don't allow pharma in. They don't let industry into the hospital or, you know, they don't let their employees do any type of promotional activity. So it is something that is not without controversy, but I really enjoy it. I think it's something where um, I've become a better clinician just because of the educational component that, uh, you know, comes with it when I have to prepare for for giving a talk or, you know, learn and become knowledgeable on the underlying pathophysiology of a drug. So it's something that's been quite enjoyable. I am now at a point where about 40% of my income comes from consulting. So not all of that is promotional pharmaceutical stuff. Um, some of it is medical education, some of it is doing, uh, you know, organizational health consulting, things like that. But pharmaceutical consulting is a big chunk of it. And I think the cool thing about it is it allows people to to have a little side hustle. It's something, it's we talked about it in a previous episode where teaching and precepting is a really nice way to add on to your current clinical career or maybe build your resume for whatever that next step is in your career. And I think cons pharmaceutical consulting is very similar where you don't have to quit your day job to start dabbling. And if you have success in it, a lot of times it can translate into more, whether that be, you know, more lucrative consulting that you're still doing on the side or potentially even a conversion where your career then um, shifts over from clinical to industry. I think you probably put a lot of people at ease because I know for myself, I don't want to make the jump to something that I'm unsure of. I don't even know if I'm good at it. I want to take uh, just a toe in the in the pool. I think that this whole idea of gig work prior to jumping into industries is is a great idea, um, a great way for for anybody to try their skills in another area. Um, but here we are today talking about how we can actually do it. Um, and so if, if it's okay with you, something that I'm going to do today, something new, is I'm going to give everybody just a little bit of an agenda of what we're going to be going through. So we're going to talk about some opportunities in pharma, uh, 
Mike is going to speak to programs where you can speak, some boards you can be a part of. Then there's the compliance side we're going to touch on as well. And how you evaluate yourself as a part of a fair market value. Uh, how could you compare to other folks around the industry it, na nationwide uh, and for even some groups globally, depending on who you might speak for. Uh, and wrapping it up, we're going to talk about the actual steps of how to get there. Uh, it's rich, full of information. We're going to have a lot of notes for you to review, uh, but let's just get right into it. Uh, this is where I wish we had some great intro music. Um, I'm going to work on it. I ordered a kazoo off of... I thought you were going to start singing. N um, <laughs> we could do that, too. <laughs> I ordered a kazoo. Let me play it for you. Yeah, I ordered a kazoo, and, and that's where we're going to start with our next intro. Uh, but let's get down into it. Uh, pharma, our opportunities. What's out there that we can start looking for or Googling, uh, get a little bit more information on? Well, let me tell you my story because it kind of segues into what opportunities are out there. So I've been a, a psych PA for about 10 years. And five years into my career, uh, one of the reps for one of the drugs that I used, you know, indicated, asked if I was interested in speaking. And at that time, I was, I was familiar with speakers. I had been to programs, but I, I wasn't even aware that non-physicians could be speakers. Every time I had gone to a program, it had always been a physician. So I was hesitant, but, you know, thought it so might sound fun. So I said yes, and then I went along the process. Looking back now, I had no idea what I was doing, but I submitted my CV, which at the time was, you know, not very impressive. And uh, thankfully, I was accepted. And with that first company, this was back in, I think, 2015 that I started this, or 2016. Um, I did a couple programs here and there. They were very low paying. Um, but it was really wonderful. I learned a lot and built on that. And then what ended up happening is as I kind of honed my craft, I became a better speaker. I understood how to, you know, conduct a program in a manner that is really high yield for the participants. If someone comes to a program, you know, I think a lot of times we like to think about it as whining and dining, but it really isn't. The whole purpose of it is good educational content. And we may say, or critics may say, oh, you know, they're there for a good stake. But let's be honest, if it's a bad program, people aren't going to come. Um, you know, you have to have good content along with a good steak. Um, you know, previously a good glass of wine before this year, but we'll talk about that. But so I started, I started doing it and I really enjoyed it. And I, you know, recognized that it was something that I think, you know, had potential to grow. So I was intentional about it. I, I started really focusing on my public speaking skills. I started reading books and um, kind of trying to find stuff online on how to be better in engaging audiences and how to keep audiences engaged, how to present slides in a way that was not boring. And as I worked on improving myself, as my skill set got better, then other companies started hearing about it. You know, the especially in psychiatry, the pharmaceutical industry is small. Everybody knows each other. So I was able to start having word of mouth spread. And then I started speaking for other companies. And it kind of built from there because every time I would speak for a new company, it would build my CV. It would continue to reinforce that I was, uh, you know, someone who was competent at doing this. So it started small and then has just continued to steadily build like I said earlier, where now it, it ends up being a significant component of my income each year. Now, how many how many uh, speaking engagements when you first started off, uh, say per month, when you had your first gig, how many times that month did you have another gig 
or how fast did it pick up? So when I first started, I think I did maybe three programs for in six months. It was very infrequent and they were all lunches, um, you know, typically inside baseball, if a pharmaceutical company hires you and they're not sure how you're going to do, they'll often start with a lunch because the lunches are a little bit more low pressure. Yeah. A lot of Salisbury steaks um, and stuff. <laughs> yeah. A lot of times for the lunches, they'll, they'll bring you into a, a medical office. So you'll do your presentation, you know, in the lunch, in the break room. A lot of times you're doing it on your little 12 inch laptop. So it's very different from going to a dinner program where you may have 25 people attending. And a lot of times at these dinner programs, you may have people that are there ready to try and, uh, you know, prove you wrong or, or prove to you that the science is, is bad or that the data is manipulated by greedy pharma. Um, so they'll start you off with lunch programs. And that's, I think, what happened. I was young. I, I really did not have a, a resume that was, you know, extensive. So I only did a handful of programs in those first six months. But then it slowly built from there as I was able to kind of identify or learn how to do it. Because looking back, those first couple programs that I did were were not pretty, I'm sure. They were kind of awkward and ugly. So they they got better as I went. And then the frequency of the work continued to increase as well. Did you try and ask whoever was recruiting you to do these to try to get more of these engagements during that period of time? Or were you just letting it fly and whatever came, came? Yeah, so that's a, a good point. So, and this is a good insight, I think, to how regulated the promotional industry is in the pharmaceuticals. So as a speaker, I am prohibited from soliciting my own programs. So I cannot go to a rep and say, hey, I'll work for you. Or, hey, can you get me a program here that is explicitly forbidden? I think, uh, you know, there could even be legal action. Certainly at the minimum, they would kick you off the speaker board if you did that. So, and, you know, aside from that, just professionally, I think that's a bad look. Like, I, I'm not going to go to people and be like, hey, hey, come use me. You know, if, if my product is good, then the hope would be that they'll seek me out. And I think the nice thing with speaking, I've always taken this approach to it, is I've got a wonderful day job. I really enjoy what I do clinically. So speaking is really low pressure to me because if I get good gigs, great. I really enjoy speaking. I enjoy teaching. If I don't get good gigs, fine. Like, I don't need it. It's it's something that is always kind of icing on the cake. But yeah, you are not allowed to solicit your own program. So you have to be very careful with that. But there's always that. It's almost like a politician. You know, I, I don't want to run for president unless the people ask me to. Mm -hmm. I think as a speaker, it's kind of that thing where, you know, sure, I'm willing to work and I'm very eager and hungry. But at the same time, I'm not going to go ask for programs because well, that's a big It sounds no -no. like it's a very low pressure situation in trying to get the work, though, because if you can't really legally or some policies uh, don't allow that type of behavior, the pressure's on the companies themselves and not you. So you can only either improve or maybe you're just not cut out for the speaking engagements. It's, it seems like it might be a sink right. or swim situation. Uh, it's, it's, it's low pressure, but then also can be a little intimidating all at the same time. Cause you're right. There's nothing that you can do to get more programs. I mean, you can network. So if you go to a, a CME conference or a, you know, an association dinner and you meet reps and you go to the industry hall Certainly, you can you know hand out your cards and make sure that your your face is uh, uh, known to them. But really, there's, there's not a whole lot that you can do to get the program. So what happens with most companies is you become a speaker, and then they take your headshot, and then they take your CV, 
and they'll put you in their speaker database. So then when a rep is looking to schedule a program, let's say they're doing a program for the, you know, Western New York Physician Assistant Association. So then presumably they may want a PA to come speak because a lot of times the drug companies will want to do peer-to-peer marketing. So instead of having a, a physician come in, they'll have a PA come in to speak to PAs. They'll go to that database and then they'll look and there may be 10 PAs in the database and they'll just pick someone from that list. And that may be on your CV. You know, if you have a skill set or if you have experience, if you have, you know, academic appointment that is similar to other attendees, they may want that. Or it may just be geographic. They may want someone that is local to make it easy, or they may want someone that's out of town thinking that an out-of-town speaker will will garner more interest with attendees. So it's very low pressure because you just sit and wait and you wait for you know gigs to be offered to you. There's not really anything you can do beyond just sitting and waiting. But at the same time, um, anyone that's listening, you know, when you become a new speaker, those first couple programs are very intimidating because if you perform well, you will probably get more gigs because that's that rep is going to be happy with your work and then invite you back. That rep will likely go and tell their colleagues, hey, this person's a really good speaker. You should really use them. And most of your your work will come from word of mouth. If you don't perform well, though, you may not get a whole lot of gigs. And I know a lot of people that have done speaking where they they joined a speaker bureau because they were, you know, what we call KOLs. They're key opinion leaders in their field. So they were thought of very highly um, in their clinical role, they became speakers and they really struggled with the public speaking aspect of it. They didn't provide a good quality program and they only did one or two programs and then they weren't invited back. Okay. So th- it is a little bit intimidating, but at the same time, it's low key, like I said, because you have a day job. So it's not like you have to, uh, oh my goodness, if I don't get a gig, I'm not going to feed my family. So in talking to pharmaceutical recruiters, um, other folks that I've I've met in the past, I would say uh, there are, are most companies would sacrifice the KOL uh, esteem in the community for somebody who is a better speaker, but may not have as much clinical experience as as others. But at the same in the same breath, though, that doesn't mean everybody qualifies to be a speaker. I'm sure um, people are turned away or not called upon when they want to do it. So. What type of person w- might be uh, a proper individual to speak that? I mean, are we talking clinicians or are we academia? Are we talking people? In- yeah. So I think historically, I mean, even like I said, I've been doing this for 10 years. So I'm still early career or maybe just transitioning to not being considered early career. But when I started, I think most speakers, even in 2015 and 2016, when I would go to speaker trainings, a lot of times I may, I would potentially have been the only PA and there'd be maybe one or two NPs. I just went to a speaker training recently this past year and it was about a 50-50 mix, 50% physicians and 50% APPs. So I think things have changed really drastically even in 10 years, but historically speakers were generally um, academics. So it would be people that you know, maybe it were involved in the clinical trials. And a lot of times those speakers were, you know, older towards the late stages of their career. Their CV was immensely impressive. They, they'd have, you know, 100 publications to their name, but they weren't clinically practicing. So they weren't actually seeing patients day in and day out. They weren't treating patients. And now what I think is happening is you still have a role for those vaunted academic researchers. There's still 
these incredible titans of their field that, you know, have so many publications that just nationally everybody knows their name, but more and more pharmaceutical industry is interested in peer-to-peer types of marketing where they want clinicians that are in the clinic, seeing these conditions, using the drug, treating these patients. And think about it. If you went to a program as a pharmacist and there was a, a big academic there that had published over a hundred things. And, you know, he's waxing poetically, talking at a level that is maybe beyond your understanding. It's really intimidating to raise your hand and say, what's a dopamine receptor? You know, or ask a question that you might think is stupid, where if a pharmacist was giving a talk on a drug and that pharmacist is working in a clinical setting, you see them as more of an equal, you see them as more of a peer, you may be much more comfortable to say, hey, can you slow down? I know you mentioned this, you know, one slide ago, and I'm not sure what you meant. Can you explain that? And that's really, once again, the purpose of these talks is educational. Granted, the drug company wants you to be educated on how to use that specific drug. They have a purpose for sure. But there's been a great increase in in a desire from industry to have that peer-to-peer marketing. So you don't have to have, you know, you don't have to be a KOL in the sense that you need to be you know, nationally known as a PA or as an NP or as a pharmacist. But it is still something where to be a speaker, industry will want to see you as an influencer, as someone who is still an opinion leader. And we can talk about, if you want, we can jump into that or we can talk about just different things of how that looks of how to be an opinion leader. Well, we do have listeners that are uh, spread across the board. So it's not going to just be uh, medication or drug Mm -hmm. Uh, products, what else is out there that you could be a speaker for? Yeah, great question. So I do a lot of pharmaceutical speaking for drugs, and that's just because I work in psychiatry. So I'm a legalized drug dealer. But there's a lot of different opportunities for industry. Um, So let's stick with, so there's pharmaceutical speaking where you're doing promotional programs. And then there's also what's called advisory committees or advisory boards. And this a lot of times is kind of a, a low-hanging fruit. A lot of times pharmaceutical companies will, will use these as kind of tests to see how you are, to see if you're knowledgeable. And basically what an advisory committee is, is a lot of times industry will get, get together a group of people that are either you know leaders in their field, key opinions, or just maybe um, a group of people that are their test market. You know, people, clinicians that they are going to be targeting with their material. And there may be a variety of things that these ad boards convene to do. Sometimes it'll be, hey, we want to show you our promotional slides and get your feedback on whether you find these compelling. Or, hey, take a look at this research study. If you look at this research study, do you think that this would compel you to, to prescribe the drug? Or would you need to see more research? And if you do need to see more research, what outcomes do you need to see to write this drug. But sometimes it can be even stuff as, you know, new drug development. You know, if, if a new drug were to come out for this condition, would it, would there be a need for it in the market? So there's a lot of opportunities with advisory boards and those are a lot of fun. And those are typically one-time gigs. So it's not something where you get on a speaker bureau and then you're sitting and waiting by the phone, hoping that someone will use you. Uh, but rather they'll they'll contact you, say, hey, we've got an all-day meeting coming up. And a lot of times now with uh, COVID or post-COVID, these are over Zoom, which makes it even more convenient. And you may just sit down on a, on a Zoom meeting for six hours or eight hours 
and they'll just grill you because they, they really are there to try and get as much information from you as a clinician as possible. And I think the ad boards are another great example where so often clinicians, I think, don't realize how much or how valuable their skill set is, where a lot of times we can provide some really valuable insight for industry of, hey, is this something that's compelling to a clinician or, you know, the boots on the ground people, the people that are seeing patients every day, do you prioritize this or is this actually important to you? And sometimes it can be something as simple as, I mean, I've done uh, an advisory committee for um, a dictation service, you know, so it's not always drugs. Like when you're dictating notes or when you're charting, is this valuable to you or is it this? So it can be a lot of different things. But moving beyond that, there's a lot of industry opportunity with um, pharmacy even. There's specialty pharmacies that will convene ad boards or even have consultants. Um, medical devices, so surgery. There's there's a huge, huge um, industry and need for peer-to-peer marketing for surgical devices, especially where you need to train them. And within that, there's also opportunities for clinicians to be hired by pharma to train other clinicians. So if you are in a procedurally heavy specialty and you are proficient in a certain procedure, there may be opportunities where the industry or the pharma company or the drug device company, sorry, I'm in pharma world, but where the industry member may hire you to then go train other clinicians how to use their suture or how to use their whatever device it may be within the procedure. So there's a lot of different opportunities And once again, all of these opportunities are ones that generally can be done in addition to your nine to five day job. And I'll add that we, we probably all know somebody who works in some sort of device sales, medical sales, pharma sales. A lot of these folks who are in the sales section or sector, they aren't clinicians. They haven't, uh, been a part of any sort of terminal degree program. Uh, They may have gotten a biology degree, marketing degree, something like that, but they are educated by the organization themselves, which goes to say, again, it's not about your experience all the time. Uh, It can be more about your soft skills, uh, presenting skills, ability to learn, um, uh, and networking. I mean, that's that's probably a huge part of it, but it's not that you even need to be someone who is the KOL or the subject matter expert doing it's if you have the willingness to learn, uh, they might just take a chance on you at at that point as well. Yeah. And I think a lot of times the cool thing with speaking is that at least in my experience, pharmaceutical companies are willing to take a shot at people that don't have industry experience. So, so often in the pharmaceutical industry, if you want to become an MSL, which is a medical science liaison, which, you know, I think is a whole separate episode because that's a wonderful alternate career path for people that are maybe looking to leave clinical medicine. Um, So just to give a quick summary in case people don't know, an MSL is generally a physician, a PA, an NP, or a pharmacist. It's usually a a doctoral level um, degree, and it's not in sales. So you have your drug reps who are trying to, you know, push product, although these days drug reps are really more account servicing. But um, you have your drug reps who which are trying to promote their product, but then the MSLs are on the medical affairs team. So they're there to be liaisons or resources to clinicians. If you need, hey, I need clinical data on how this drug works in this population, or I want to see all the clinical trials for this drug in geriatric patients over 65, the MSLs can help you find that. They can walk you through the data, interpret it. They are not tied to sales. They don't get any bonuses for sales. They are there to be just just strictly medical affairs. 
typically those jobs, though, they want to see industry experience. It's very hard to break in to an MSL position. And a lot of times speaking can be that gateway to that because people, if you are a good clinician and you're very um, you know, good at what you do, you're, you're well regarded in the community within your specialty, the pharma industry will take a chance on you, have you be a speaker. And then if you're successful at that, if you do ad boards for them, that's a really great way to build a relationship with them, which can then translate into a full-time job down the road. So we talked about clinicians joining these pharma industry uh, businesses, but there is the academics as well. The PhDs who have done most of the research from what I'm aware of and speaking to a lot of these folks in recruiting, it's, it's not usually a great transition. Uh, and you could probably imagine why a lot of the, these folks who are in that sector don't have as much, uh, people interaction as we do. We're face to face all day long. Uh, we've been working on these soft skills, uh, getting yelled at, getting praised. I mean, we can react to almost everything. It's not always the case for, uh, an academic or somebody in a PhD program, not to say that there aren't those folks out there. It's just generally that's how it works. So if you are in academia or if you are in a PhD program, and you want to do this, good chance that you are, you have the intelligence, of course, you probably have the background. They just need to see that you like to speak and and you're well-spoken uh, and you can relay information that isn't over and above everybody's head, like you were saying earlier. So uh, we might have folks in PhD programs listening as well. I hope we do eventually. Uh, but to add to what you're talking, um, when you're talking about MSLs, I, I can't wait to have an MSL on here. We know plenty of them. Uh, I've never met an MSL to say that I'm looking for something else. Uh, I've every MSL I've ever talked to said this is the best job they've ever had. Uh, nobody ever wants to leave it. And if they leave, they're probably just going to a management role, a director role. It's usually very vertical. Uh, I do want to make one caveat statement to what you had said before. If anybody goes on after this episode and starts researching MSL, uh, not every company calls it medical affairs. Medical affairs can be just an internal uh, house where they do medical writing, uh, information processing. There's so much, uh, there's, it's a vast uh, industry that I don't know all the depths of it too, but I do know that medical affairs mostly carries its own weight as resources for sales or folks like liaisons. And we can get more into that and we will get more into that. We're going to have those folks on as well. Uh, okay. So we mentioned compliance as well. Unless you want to have anything to wrap up with, um, I, I want to move along to compliance to make sure we get all the information out to everybody. Uh, but there is, there's probably a lot of this uh, information that will be repeated. And uh, if you're part of the Patreon program, we will be over at Offscript talking a little bit more in depth about how to actively move into this role. So uh, save your questions until the end. Uh, but Mike, do you have anything else you want to say about the opportunities that might be available? Or do you want to get into maybe some more of the compliance sides that aren't necessarily speaking? Yeah, so we can jump to compliance. I think I would wrap up our overview of, of speaking opportunities or what's out there by just saying that I think the skills that are needed. So if you're listening to this, you're a clinician, and it doesn't matter what what profession you are. I know pharmacists that speak. I know nurse practitioners that speak. I know PAs that speak. Um, I even, in it, even nurses, I know several nurses that are speakers. And even recently I met an MA who is a speaker. 
So uh, the the pharmaceutical company has hired her. Like a medical assistant? Yeah, a medical assistant. And I'm sorry, I, I misspoke. I, I haven't met her. It's actually a, a medical assistant in my wife's practice. But yeah, so hmm. she is very proficient at a, a certain procedure with one of the drugs. So she was hired to be a speaker, and she is now going on behalf of the drug company to educate other clinical staff on how to use this product from a procedural standpoint. So as an MA, she's not going and saying, this is the phase three clinical trials, and this was the effect size, and take a look at the, you know, at the, uh, you know, margin for error or whatever here. But she's going in and saying, okay, this is how you prepare the product. This is how you do the injection, things like that. So there's just so many opportunities, and I don't want listeners to think that, you know, being a speaker is limited to doctoral level positions or, you know, just to providers. Really, if you are proficient in a task, if you are using a product and have a high level of knowledge of a, of a product that is branded and promoted by pharmaceutical industry, there may be opportunities there. So public speaking, obviously that's important when you do these talks, you're giving talks to, you know, anywhere from two people to the, the largest I think I've done so far is 1,200. So that was fun. I, uh, I went to a national conference and gave a talk, and there was a, a com- combination of live in person and then online on Zoom. So it's uh, a little bit different when you get in front of that many people, but um, it was a lot of fun. So public speaking is a big, important thing. I, as John said earlier, you know, a lot of times you don't have to be the smartest in the room. You just have to really present the material well. Um, but beyond that, you do have to have a pretty good in-depth understanding of the pharmacology and the underlying pathophysiology. So if you don't understand the drug or you don't understand the device, you're not going to make a good speaker because, you know, the last thing someone wants to do is if someone is attending a dinner program because there's a new drug on the market and they ask the speaker a question, the, the speaker says, I have no idea. That's not a good look. You're not going to get hired back. So the drug companies will generally train you. You go to speaker training. You learn how to answer everything compliantly because you're very limited. You can only talk about things that are on label. You can only talk about things that are in the product insert, which is the PI, that, that really paper-thin uh, you know sheet that comes with every drug. But you do need to be very knowledgeable about the drug and be prepared for critical questioning when you do these talks. We've all been in those either resident interviews or um, at least for pharmacy the PGY-1 or PGY-2 interviews where you got people coming in, they give their their lecture, or the, and then we get to ask questions at the end of the program or at the end of the uh, presentation. We all see it and we all can tell when somebody doesn't know what they're talking about. And it seems as though the speaker never does. Um, when we were in school, it was always drilled into us to, if you don't know, say you don't know, because there will be somebody who does. And if you say the wrong thing, you've just lost a mm-hmm, ton of mm-hmm. uh, influence, um, credibility. Right. So, yeah, this is, I, I know we're giving hope to a lot of people that there is possibilities out there, but don't go into something that you're just going to f- uh, flounder at because you think it might be fun to speak. Because if you're not somebody that they're looking for, you're going to be um, hard up for luck. But there's other speaking opportunities that we will hopefully yeah. talk about probably on off script uh, or another episode. Yeah, you're right. I, I'm very, I'm very passionate about it. I really love doing it. Um, it's, it's a lot of fun. You get to meet so many cool people. You get to talk to so many, uh, you know, different clinicians in different paths, but you're right. This is not something, I mean, this is something where I would advise listeners. You really want to be passionate about it. You want to be motivated because if getting up in front of 25 people scares you, 
um, then it's probably going to be tough for you to have success as a speaker. But also be prepared that if you're a speaker, there will absolutely be people that will come to your talks that are there just to trip you up because people will come and think, you know, industry is bad. Industry is evil. I'm going to come and I'm going to eat the steak, but I'm going to make sure that I give my criticisms of the data. So you do have to go in a with thick skin, but also really make sure that you are prepared for every possibility. And I think that's the thing that people don't see very often. They may attend one of these talks and, you know, it looks like everyone's whining and dining and it's, it's, you know, you're eating at fancy restaurants. But what's not seen is hopefully if you're a good speaker, you're really putting a lot of prep in, you know, before every talk, even though if I've given the slides 50 times, I'm still going through them. A lot of times I'm pulling the reference research studies to make sure that I understand, okay, so on this research study, the pop, the N was this, you know, on, on this one, there was mm-hmm. a bit of a skew in population data from the, the, the placebo to the active control. You need to know your DI, you need to be able to process exactly a drug information, correctly evaluate studies. Yeah. Yeah, you do have to have some some level of uh, understanding of basic research concepts and a lot of it you can learn. So if you don't know that right now, that doesn't mean that you tune us out and you say, oh, this isn't for me. More so just be prepared to learn that this isn't this isn't something that you'll have success in if you go into it thinking that you can do it without work. It is a lot of work, but it's a lot of fun. Sure. Okay. Let me take a step back then. Uh, I'll take a step back and say that it's not that you were good or didn't like it because a lot of this, at least I find, maybe it's just anecdotal. A lot of the folks who want to make transitions are usually around 10, 15 years out in their career because they've experienced enough to see that they are good at one thing and don't enjoy another. So you have all that experience. Um, You might just have found the wrong book to read. Right. When we were younger, we were told to read and read all this, these books we hated. Most of us didn't find that we actually enjoyed reading until we grew up and said, oh, I actually didn't enjoy those books. All right. So let's uh, let's let's keep it moving to uh, compliance. Uh, I want to make sure that on off script that we've got some stuff to talk about. All right. So let's talk compliance. So this is huge. And I think this is really good. A, if you're interested in, you know, maybe doing pharmaceutical speaking just to understand all the regulation that's out there for this. But then also, you know, as I said earlier, uh, promotional pharmaceutical stuff is controversial. Um, you know, there's there's research out there of whether these promotional talks influence prescribing habits, you know, all kinds of stuff. Today's episode is not really geared to get into that. Maybe down the road we could do it because I think it's an interesting topic. But it's really helpful, I think, if you are someone who is skeptical of industry to to at least be aware of how highly regulated it is. Because I think a lot of times the pharmaceutical industry gets a really bad rap because there were excesses in the industry maybe 20 or 30 years ago. And the pharmaceutical industry is still paying, you know, its penance for the excesses of, of previous generations. And as a result, people have a bad opinion of it, even though now it's so highly regulated that I think it, it is really tough for there to be bad actors. There may be, you know, bad apples every once in a mm. while, but as a whole... I think uh, everything is pretty tightly regulated where it would be very difficult to to be nefarious. Uh, check out any uh, pharma posting for a job on LinkedIn or Indeed. And at the bottom, most of them will say something about the, uh, the Sunshine Act. Mm-hmm. If you ever get in an interview, guarantee that they will ask you in that interview, are you aware of the Sunshine Act? How much do you know about it? Um, how versed? Uh, and I don't know if that if you're going to get into that. I know we're getting into some other compliance yeah, we can. issues, but um, that Sunshine Act, uh, 
really limits the ability for any sales department or MSLs regulating all the folks who are educating and providing these services uh, to a more strict standard. Uh, 2010, they created a bunch of regulations, uh, really reporting to CMS, a lot of public information available now. You're, you're able to see a lot of uh, financial uh I'm going to say decision-making that the farm industry has uh, either used in promotions, marketing through their speaker engagements because of the sunshine act. So uh, if you're already familiar with pharmacy or any other, anything else in medicine, it's just as highly regulated as that. So uh, it's not like you're going into something that is free and, and cowboy. Um, you will be held tightly by your management mm-hmm. there. Yeah. And so everybody's listed and that's a great point. You know, as you're in is a, if a listener is interested in potentially getting into pharmaceutical speaking, just be aware that any money that you receive from the pharmaceutical industry for promotional activity gets publicly posted. So you definitely need to make sure that your employer is okay with it because there are some employers that have policies in place where you cannot have any industry relationships. Um, You have to make sure if you're on any formulary committees. So if you sit on your hospital's committee for deciding what drugs are on formulary, that can be a potential issue. So you need to be aware that all of your payments, all of your financial transactions with industry are public. So people can look those up. Patients can look those up. On my end, I'm very comfortable with this. If if patients ever ask me, I'm, I'm always happy to discuss my relationships with companies because... Um, first off, I, you know, the, the companies that I work for are generally ones where I really do believe in the product. It's not something where I'm only speaking for the people that pay me. Um, you know, if there's a drug that I think maybe is not great or maybe I don't think is superior to its competitors, I'm not going to consult for them. And I, I think it's wonderful that I'm in a position where I can do consulting work for drugs where I believe in them. So... When when you started the speaking program, uh, employers, I'm sure that they're going to be on either side of this issue saying they support it or absolutely not. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about what the potential of there being some sort of uh, division in employers with employers and with these gigs? Because uh, I, I, I don't know if there there would be a concern that you would, I don't know, push um uh, one medication over the other, assuming that you're getting kickbacks, even though we have the Sunshine Act. Well, yeah, so don't, it's not a kickback. And I, I want to make sure that we're very careful with our wording, though, because that's exactly why this industry is so heavily regulated, is because there there's the potential there where industry could be, you know, using kickbacks in the sense that they're paying speakers in exchange for writing more product or, you know, doing things that way. So everything is very, very highly regulated to ensure that everything is done above board, that there are not kickbacks. But that is the big concern. The reason that a lot of um, healthcare organizations may ban any relationships with industry is they don't want any appearance of undue influence or any any outward appearance that their providers may be influenced or prescribing in certain ways because of that. So typically, um, there is a growing number of industries or healthcare organizations that don't allow reps into their facilities and similarly may have prohibitions on their employees doing consulting. And usually these are going to be government or academic. So a lot of academic centers won't allow industry involvement or they'll be highly regulated where you can do something with industry, 
Um, I know at least a couple academic centers where they're allowed to speak, but it has to be signed off by department chair. And then a lot of times the money may have to go back to the academic center and then the academic center will pay the speaker. So there's a lot of different rules and regulations. If you are at the VA or in a government role, it is generally just a hard no. So if you work for the VA, you can't even get a drug lunch. If you show up on the Sunshine Act at all, you're in big trouble. Now, I know some VA, VA providers that still go out to dinners and they just kind of dare their employer to to be, uh, you know, to enforce the rules. But you do have to be very careful with that. So the big, I think, takeaway is if you have interest in speaking, clear it with your employer first. Make sure that you're not going to be in violation of any policies at your day job. Have you seen the the show Dope Sick with Michael Keaton? No, I haven't. I need to watch it, though. So it's it is it's really great. Uh, I think that there's some hyperbole behind how pharma uh, sends their sales teams out into the region. But let me, I'll tell you, when I say hyperbole, uh, you'll see some of these meetings in the show where they're pumping each other up. We're talking about how big the um, potential bonuses are if you're at the top of your tier or if you beat out everybody else. Uh in the, in the show, Michael Keaton realized what had happened and he felt like he had been duped. A lot of people were hurt from the medication, uh, dealing with the opioid crisis. And when the, the litigation started, there was issues because he was invited at one point to speak on behalf, talking about his experiences with the medication and its practice and not necessarily getting paid for it. At that point, he was just speaking as a, a testimonial, even that itself, uh, became an issue in the litigation. And that was years ago. I mean, we're talking the nineties into the early two thousands. Uh, so this isn't, I mean, th yeah, that's, that's a show, but that clearly represents how there is pressure from one side sometimes, and it has gotten a lot better, but it's still there. I just don't want people thinking that everybody is the used car salesman type in, in pharma, slick back hair, nice suits and trounce, you know, trouncing into your practice, looking well slept while you've got 15 uh, patients in the back. Yeah. So, it's, so that's a good transition. So, right. And I think that's, it's a great example. Um, I think it was the book that I, I've read the book that Dope Sick was based on. And I think within the book, it talks about some of those practices and, and some of it, was it Purdue Pharma? Is that the one that made Oxycontin. Yeah. yeah, Purdue. Some of the things that they did, I mean, there were, you know, I think six, seven figure bonuses that were going out to some of the top sales reps. So it, there is some crazy stuff that happened historically. Oh, yeah. If we're talking about I mean, that, that will probably be, come up at some yeah. point in the future. Uh, sick. It's horrible. It's a, it's an epidemic. And obviously, we know that uh, opiates are an epidemic in the country now, but um, how the company handled that uh it was it was not handled well and now it's really paying for it now in dividends so i think john brought up a good point though of just you know the slick back hair and you know thinking of reps or thinking of these promotional activities as like condo sales or, or, or timeshares or used car sales and i think the big thing to remember is that these promotional talks when you are doing a speaker program the primary and explicit purpose of these talks is to be educational. You are there to provide education on the drug, on the disease state. The slides are provided by the drug company, so speakers are not making their own slides. The drug reps or the MSLs are not making the slides. The slides are all created 
by corporate and heavily, heavily scrutinized, heavily regulated. They're submitted to the FDA for clearance. So anything that you are presenting within that promotional program is consistent with FDA guidelines, has been submitted for at least FDA clearance. They don't have to approve it, but they at least submit them for FDA review. So everything that's done within a speaker program is incredibly regulated. And the reason for this is to make sure that these talks are indeed educational. They're not quid pro quo. They're not, hey, you know, you've you've written a lot of these scripts, so I'm going to give you a speaker program and throw you an attaboy. They're not, hey, I'm going to invite out this office because if they said, they said, you know, if I bring them out to dinner and give them a good steak, they'll write more of my product. As a speaker, I think it's really helpful to be aware of the statutes, especially with anti-kickback, because as a speaker, you have a role to make sure that you are compliant too. You can't just stick your head in the sand and assume that you know you're, the drug companies that are hiring you are going to be above board. They generally are. I'm not saying that there's really bad actors. I've really not had an experience ever that was um, you know grossly non-compliant. Every once in a while, when you speak, you may have something that's a little bit like cringy, and we can talk about that maybe a little bit in off script. But it was never something where it was like, oh, my gosh, this is blatant fraud or this is blatant quid pro quo. But mm-hmm. it's good to be aware of that, because if you were to see that happening um, and you can go online and read, there are still, you know, Department of Justice criminal investigations or prosecutions mm-hmm. that happen for um, illegitimate speaker programs. And sometimes what happens is um, they may log in a speaker program, but no attendees came. They they say, oh, yeah, there was a speaker program and 10 people showed up and no one was actually there. And it was actually just a kickback to the mm. speaker. Um, there may be programs where they don't have enough attendees, so they'll forge the names and then just take the take meals home. Um, there may be mm-hmm. programs where a rep is just taking out someone's office and there's no educational value because they're just going out. You know, just because the rep wants to to curry favor with the office, but there's not really an educational aspect to it. There's programs where the speaker may not even show up or may not provide, um, you know, the educational slides. So all of those things are are like blatantly out of bounds, and thankfully, I don't think happen frequently. But they can they can be prosecuted. So as a speaker, you have to be aware of this. I think uh, all of us in practice have folks we've worked with who. Hopefully, I mean, maybe you haven't, but hopefully you don't have to, who have acted this way in your practice or who you you just don't uh, really trust their judgment. There's some integrity issues yeah. there. And those people are going to be everywhere. So I guess we're not really saying much uh, different from what you may have already experienced, but uh, mirroring the fact that just because you're jumping into a potential other non-traditional world doesn't mean that the world completely changes. So let me actually, let me go through this. So I've got here on our show notes... And once again, I know this is a a content-heavy educational one. John and I have been trying to kind of intermix interviews with educational episodes. So with the educational episodes, we always post show notes for our patron members. And you can find all of this stuff written down with resources and links. But I have here the Office of of the Inspector General released guidance recently for kind of red flags. So speaker programs that may violate the kickback statutes. And I want to just go through this list real quick, just so that you're aware of what a bad speaker program may look like. Selecting high prescribing speakers and then rewarding them with lucrative speaking deals. So if speakers are being selected and then given programs based on how many scripts they write. Conditioning speaker um, speaker payment on sales targets, requiring speakers to write a certain number of scripts before they can be a speaker. 
And that one would be so blatant. Like I've never even heard of that one in, in my time in, in industry. Holding speaker programs at entertainment venues or during recreational events or otherwise in a manner not conducive to a true educational presentation. So this is an important one. Once again, I think pharma is maligned where we think of these as kind of whining or dining. We are not allowed to do a speaker program at a football game. Like you can't get a box at a football game and then do a speaker program because that would not be predominantly educational. And I mean, it makes sense in your mind, right? If, if you're getting invited by a drug rep to go to a, a football game in a box, you're not going to pay attention to, to, to the speaker there. So that would be predominantly entertainment, not education. So that would be a problem. This sounds very similar to our CPA discussion about when and what to write off, what you can yeah. and cannot write off. Right. It, if it doesn't sound right, check on it or don't do it. Right. This is not the place to, uh, uh, to ask for forgiveness rather than permission. <laughs> right. You have to be very cautious. So another one, holding programs at high-end restaurants where expensive meals and alcohol are served. So this one is a little bit more difficult um, because I think a lot of times the general public looks at these speaker programs and they see them being held at pretty swanky venues. And, you know, a high-end restaurant, can, can it's a sliding scale. It can mean different things because the, the way I like to think about it is if you have a physician and their, you know, average income is $400,000 a year, they're not going to come to a speaker program at Applebee's. So, you know, they're, they're, they're probably going to only attend if this is at a, a level of restaurant that is, you know, meeting what their expectations are for an evening out. But at the same time, you don't want to be excessive. So you'll see this where I think, you know, speakers or uh, these programs, they're not held at super, super swanky, you know, $500 a plate places. Generally, most have a limit, a plate limit of anywhere from 100 to $125 per plate, which is still very nice. I, I don't ever want to minimize that or make it sound like we're, you know, all eating on silver spoons here. But the, uh, the high, high end is limited. So inviting an audience of healthcare professional attendees who already attended the same program or are the healthcare providers friends, significant others, family members, or do not really have a legitimate purpose to attend the program. So as a speaker, these are the ones that I think you often see, you know, where it's like, uh, I don't know what to do here because it's hard. Sometimes a rep is bringing you in to be the speaker. So you don't necessarily know the attendees. You don't know the rep that well if it's an out-of-town rep. And you may show up and then it's, you know, oh, well, we were a little bit short on numbers. So Dr. So-and-so brought his wife. Well, we'll just say that she's a secretary at the office. It's like, ah, so those are tougher. Um, you know, in, in those types of situations, I think it's hard. I'm not here to tell you how to react to that, but just be aware that something like that is not compliant and could be seen as potential violations of the kickback statute. And if there's violations like that as a speaker, that can come back towards you if you're conducting programs that are considered unlawful. So you really, as a speaker, want to be aware of these um, and just make sure that you are, you know, on the forefront of compliance. The good news is most of these pharmaceutical companies have compliance departments where if you were to see something like that, if Dr. So-and-so brought his spouse to a program and she did not have a legitimate educational reason to be there, you can call a compliance line and let them know, hey, I was really uncomfortable with this or this is what happened. And they've got lawyers that usually are very helpful. They're not there to get you in trouble, but they're there to make sure that everybody is compliant, that everyone's doing things the right way. And a lot of times those type of situations are not malicious. You know, the rep may not have invited the speakers or the, the physicians 
spouse, the the physician may have just showed up with the spouse. So it's always it's tough. It's a sticky situation, but there's thankfully support within the drug company to help from a compliance perspective. I want to make the point here that even though we have a lot of information, we have experience in in working with the industry, uh, we don't do this every single day, uh, 40 plus hours a week. Uh, I would love, and I think we should, and we'll have a manager or director on uh, for MSLs or sales and have a little bit more Mm -hmm. deeper questions or conversations on the specifics of training, especially because these types of uh, guidelines will most definitely be brought up in orientation first thing and then drilled into you over and over and over. Um, and so it, this doesn't need to necessarily concern or worry or, or stop you from going into it. Uh, it's These are basically the steps of what to expect when you move into it. So I don't want to discourage anybody. Uh, Anything else that we should look for? And and what about if you're being invited to one of these programs? Would we have to ever worry about being a part of a red flag, um, uh, a red flag meal? I don't know what you call it. Red red flag presentation. So I I think I I researched this a little. I was looking at uh, non-compliant programs or programs where there's been legal action. And I was not able to find anything where they went after attendees. So if you attend a speaker program or a bad program. Um, Certainly that may have ramifications with your employer. If your employer has a prohibition on industry and then you show up on the Sunshine Act, that could be a problem. But I'm not aware of any situations where an attendee then gets clipped if it's a bad program or if the rep is behaving badly. But just some things to keep in mind as an attendee, not necessarily just as a speaker. If you go to a program and it's a program with no or few attendees, you know, maybe you show up to the program and the, and the rep says, oh, man, everyone else canceled, but I'm just going to I'm just going to order, you know, five meals to go and then we'll make sure we can we'll take care of you. Do you want to take anything home to your spouse? Because the room has a minimum. That's a red flag. Once again, I'm not aware of any, um, you know, l- legal action against an attendee. But at the same time, you don't want to be involved if there's stuff that, you know, is going on that's not compliant. From what I remember, I don't know. I don't know if this has been updated, but you can't really bring food home for anybody, right? So at a program, you cannot take food to go. So what you can do is, so dessert gets served, and then you can request to have your dessert wrapped up. But you cannot order dessert to go. And that's, once again, a compliance thing, because you don't want these grab-and-goes, because once again, you know, back in the 90s, you would have speaker programs where it was grab-and-go, where you would come into the restaurant, you would just put your order in to go, you'd take your food, you'd go home, you would never even attend the program, and you would just get a free meal from a high-end restaurant. So now you cannot do to-go, the meal has to be served, and then you can request a a to-go bag for it. But so some other things as an attendee, sales reps forging attendance sheets at programs. And and this is one that I think, um, you know, probably happens more frequently than we would want. And the reason being is a lot of times there's there's an incredible amount of pressure on the sales reps because they need to have a certain number of attendees at a program. A lot of times you may have, you know, 10 RSVPs to a program and then at the last minute, six people cancel because, you know, someone has soccer practice or whatever. So there, I think there's there's this incentive structure for reps where they, they feel like, oh my goodness, I'm going to get in trouble if I have a program with too few attendees. So there may be 
a, a motivation or a, an incentive to forge attendance sheets. So that's another thing to watch for. Sales reps ordering alcohol or take-home meals. So as of 2022, alcohol is no longer allowed. Most companies will allow an attendee to order their own alcohol and their own separate check. But the, the drug company cannot pay for your alcohol. So the, the other thing to watch for is, is the sales rep asking the waiter to, to put alcohol down on the tab, maybe as an appetizer or something like that. Once again, I don't think this happens frequently. It's just something to watch of a potential abuse. Sales reps asking the speaker to recruit colleagues. So this is one that I think is a big no-no. Once again, getting into if you have an interest doing this, if a sales rep says, hey, do you have anyone that wants to come to this program? I may tell the rep, I know this office it, it has expressed interest in learning more about this disease state or things like that, but I will never text a colleague and say, hey, I'm doing a program. Do you want to come? Because once again, I don't ever want it to look like I'm soliciting or I'm going to get my buddies to come so that I can get paid by the, by the pharmaceutical company. So I would always, any type of program attendance, I make sure that that routes through the rep so that I'm not recruiting people to come. And then the last one is, sales reps asking the speaker to skip slides or condense the program. The slides should be presented. Now, granted, a speaker may at their own discretion, you know, focus on one slide more than the other. You know, sometimes I'll have a slide and I'll say, I'm just going to put this up for a second or two to let you familiarize yourself, but I'm not going to necessarily spend 10 minutes analyzing each slide. But if you have a speaker that says, we're just going to skip these 20 slides to make sure that we can get to the good parts. Or, you know, we don't have to look at those warnings and precautions. Side effects aren't really that important. That's a big red flag as well. A couple questions for you just to wrap up. Uh, when when you go, can you talk about off-label uses as the speaker? What if you're asked, what if somebody says, I, I we started using this for such and such? Uh, what's your experience? No. Yeah, great question. Yeah, so it depends on the company. Everybody has different regulations on how they can answer off-label questions. So I cannot, mm -hmm. as a speaker, proactively talk about anything that is not on-label, meaning part of the product insert or the drug information. If an unsolicited question comes to me that is off-label, depending on the company, I can either respond to that unsolicited question with a preface, this drug is indicated for X, Y, and Z, your question is in the range of something that is off-label. In my clinical experience, this is what I have seen. Other companies will just say, you have to refer those questions to the medical affairs team. So if someone has an off-label question, I would say most companies don't want you to answer that because it can get really dangerous. Because if you say, well, yeah, in my office, I'm doing this off-label, and there's actually a research study that shows that you can do this with this drug, that can get really sketchy really quick. So most drug companies just want, if you were to receive an off-label question, you would just respond with, hey, that's a great question. This is actually something that is outside of the drug's label or the FDA indication. If you want to come talk to me after the program, I can refer you to the medical affairs team and they can answer that question one-on-one. -on -one. Okay, Mike, that does lead me into my last question for you. And I want to make this a part of the podcast in the future. Um, because we do give a lot of information of what these jobs are and how you might get into it. But we haven't talked a lot about job satisfaction or what keeps you wanting to do it. Uh, it when you're presenting just information, how can that be enjoyable for you? What keeps you coming back? Is it just the money? Do you enjoy educating? Do you see results and changes in prescribing patterns uh, as a result of your presentations? Can you give us a little taste of why it is something you want to go into? Yeah, that's a great question, and I think it's a good one to wrap up on. So the reason I love doing pharmaceutical speaking 
is I like to teach. I also like learning new things. So when I, you know, when a new drug comes out, there's a motivation or an opportunity to not only learn so that I can prescribe it myself, but then when you become a speaker, there's a greater pressure to become a really, really deep expert on that drug. And that's really exciting. I think, uh, you know, there's some level of thrill seeking, I guess, of just like, hey, I'm going to go give this talk and, you know, I may get pimped and someone may try and, you know, outshine me and show me that they know more than me, but I've done my homework. I've spent 10 hours learning about this receptor site and I, I'm ready for it. So I think the competitiveness of me enjoys it, but I to think to be the resource, like to be the right. guy, everybody wants the guy. And if you're the guy right. for somebody it, that feels good. Yeah. But I think at, at the heart of it, I really just love, cause I love doing disease state educational stuff. I've kind of branched out in recent years and I've been doing more CME medical education stuff. And I think the exciting thing is it's the same reason we get into medicine. We get into medicine to help people. We wanna you know, try and improve patients' lives. And when I am able to give a talk to 25 clinicians, I like to think that if I can make those clinicians you know, more adept or more aware of a disease state or more comfortable with a drug that may be beneficial for their patients, I'm having an outsized impact where I can have greater influence and help that many more patients through my, my act. So the money's great, you know, traveling is a lot of fun. You get to see a lot of different places, meet a lot of different people. But ultimately, I think it's just a passion for education and, and feeling like I'm helping patients that I may never even get to meet through these educational services. The podcast now is going to be moving over to Offscript. We're going to be talking about a few things. We're, we're going to discuss how to do that fair market of value, uh, how you do that uh, evaluation of what your worth is. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about speaking opportunities in your area or what you might do to practice uh, and even even very simple things about how to get into speaking engagements that have a very low intro we're going to leave that for off script uh, hope to see you all over there and until next time 